0: Hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Tully for History 311. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the post-civil rights world for African Americans. Uh, really a reduction of things. We're really very much condensing a lot. Uh, it's the end of the semester. It's the end of the semester. I'm not sure if I'm ever going to do the uh, you know the podcast lecture again since we're almost in with coronavirus. So uh, this one's going to be a little bit different. Uh, there is no... Written response this week. This is just kind of closing up some loose ends, because I really don't want to end with just uh, black power movement and kind of the, the backlash to it. I want to get to modern day. Plus, I have to talk about hip-hop. I have to talk about hip-hop. I can't not talk about hip-hop. So, what I'm going to do is I'm probably going to give you uh, some, podcast, some lectures I did for other classes, um, I actually do a history of rap music class, so we're not going to give you all them, but I'll give you the one about, maybe probably the one about gangster rap, and I'll also give you one from one of my pop culture classes about just regular hip-hop. So I know the, uh, the textbook from which I got this one talks about hip-hop a little bit, but we're going to really just blow through that until we get to uh, the real podcast. So um, if you think, why doesn't Tully talk about hip-hop in this podcast, don't worry, he'll be doing it on another lecture. So with that, why don't you go on to Moodle and get the PowerPoint. Cool. All right, so for African Americans, there have been some progress because of civil rights. Civil rights has led to better outcomes for African Americans in a couple of ways when it comes to socioeconomic changes. Uh, black people tend to live longer, healthier lives than they once did, still lagging behind at white people, but uh, better than African Americans had been doing before. Uh, There's quite a bit of uh, disparities between black and white people in terms of wealth, schooling, and also the health in general. Um, Even though black people are living better than they have been, they're not living the same way as white people. Same thing with wealth and schooling. Uh, African Americans are doing better than they were back in the day, but they're still lagging behind uh, white people, same thing with schooling, Uh, in in all, in in general, in general, as percentage, it's disproportional is what I'm looking for. I mean, you have poor people and less educated people, regardless of, you know, race, uh, just higher percentages in African-Americans is basically what I'm insinuating. Let's talk about African-American growing economic security. Uh, African-Americans grew a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot in white-collar occupations, of uh, black men who were employed about in the 1940s, about 5% were in white-collar jobs. About 6% of black women were in these kind of white-collar jobs. Uh, white-collar jobs, uh, in a, if you've never heard the term before, that's something like an office job. Something like an office job. And this is in contrast to a blue-collar job, which is where one works with their hands, tends to be work outside, tends to be uh, dirtier jobs, uh, often lower-prestige jobs, lower-prestige jobs. By the time we get to 2000, about 35% of all black men who work are working in a white-collar job, and interestingly, 62% of black women are working white-collar jobs. Um, Historically speaking, well, at least in the recent couple years, uh, African-American women have done quite a bit better than African-American men in terms of uh, jobs and uh, finances. Um, black women are more likely to have uh, education or higher degrees than black men, and they're more likely to have uh, more white-collar, more stable jobs, more professional jobs. We can get into that in class. I'm not going to offer any uh, you know guesses as to why that is. I'm just giving you the numbers. Uh, same thing with income. Same thing with income. Um, African-American income has increased over time, but it's still not great. I mean... Yes, in 1998, 50% of all African Americans are at the poverty line. I mean, about half of black families are below the poverty line as of 1998. The number's gone up somewhat. But that's still very disproportional to, uh, you know, the percentage of African Americans in the U.S. population. And also, it's also considerably better than African Americans were doing prior I mean, if we're talking before the 1930s, it's close to 90-something percent, 95 uh, percent even, of African Americans are below the poverty line. By 98, it's, still, it's only 50 percent, which is better, but it's still pretty high. It's still a pretty high number uh, proportional to the number of African Americans in the U.S. Like I said, poverty knows no race. I mean, you can be any color and be poor. Uh, it is disproportional to African Americans, though. Uh, Same thing with wealth. Average wealth of African Americans tends to lag behind white people. Now, wealth is an interesting concept. Wealth is different than income. Uh, Wealth is different than your salary. In general, depending on the job, I mean, there are some disparaging things. Uh, Oh, also I should mention black women earn about 94% of what white women earn, which is pretty good. I mean, there's not much of a race gap there. However, women tend to earn less compared to men. That's a very complicated uh, economics issue. It's not simple as, oh, they just pay women less. And it's more to do with opportunities and promotion. Generally, women are not given uh, the promotions or the opportunities that, they're, <laughs> that they merit uh, in terms of work experience and education. But still, black women tend to earn about the same as white women, which is great. It just, uh, the problem is uh, women tend to earn about 78 cents of what a man earns on a dollar. And remember, it's not just a straight style or anything. It has to do with opportunity and education. Wealth, however, is different. Your income or your salary is not wealth. Wealth is like something, I guess the best way to think about it is legally with like an estate. Maybe some of y'all have had uh, grandparents who passed away. My mom passed away a couple years ago. And, uh, you know, after she died, her estate had to be dealt with. Her estate had to be dealt with. And, you know, your estate is everything. It's your, it's property you might own. It's um, money you have in the bank accounts, uh, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, personal items such as jewelry. All these things make up your estate, and generally that's what makes up your wealth. And the thing is with wealth, there's also debts. There's also debts. Your, your net worth, one's net wealth is is basically you take uh, the assets that you own, all the assets you own, minus your debts, minus your debts, and that's where you get your your net worth and your average wealth. And African Americans tend to have much lower wealth than white people, depending on the area. In some places, it's awful. I think Boston is probably the best example of this. We've been banging on Boston a lot in this class, haven't we? But I recently read that in Boston, the average wealth of an African American family is $8, but the average wealth of a white family is something like $50,000. Now this is not saying that black people only earn eight dollars a year. They don't, but because of uh, various debts and also wealth is tend to be gener- generational. Wealth often tends to be generational. The fact that uh, you know when my wife, when my wife, when my mother, not my wife, woo, that's a Freudian slip. <laughs> uh, when my mother passed away, my wife and I, in addition to my siblings, inherited some of her estate. Um, even though my dad is still alive. Um, all my mom's assets were split in half and those assets were split three ways between my siblings and myself. And so, uh, you know, because my mom didn't owe a lot of money, I was able to get some money out of, I mean, you know, I was able to inherit some assets because of that. Uh, likewise, you know, whenever my grandfather passed away, my, my parents got some assets and it's things that tend to be generational. Uh, because of the history of racism and things like that, because of institutionalized racism of in the United States for, for centuries, even though these, uh, you know, these boundaries, parameters, whatever you want to call it, are no longer in place, you know, theoretically, you know, there's nothing stopping African Americans from earning as much as anybody else, uh, the fact is so much of wealth is generational. It's going to take a long time for all these things to be get, gotten rid of. Do you understand that just because, you know, for the past, oh, 50 or so years, you haven't had um, civil rights, um, you know, being blocked towards African-Americans doesn't mean that wealth is all of a sudden equalized. And honestly, wealth being equal is a huge thing, a big ind- indicator of that is home ownership. Um, and by the year 2000, about 48% of African-Americans own homes. Uh, homes in the United States are generally seen as the beginning of wealth. Uh, that is something that you can really you know, really build one's wealth upon because land tends to increase in value. It tends to be a very uh, good asset. Um, and if you own land, I mean, it, you're, when you buy a house, it's often called a savings account you can live in. Because you only owe what you bought the house for, but houses tend to increase in value. Uh, a primo example of this is my parents' house. Um, my parents bought a little house in Baton Rouge. It wasn't a little house. It was actually a fairly large house in Baton Rouge. Uh, not, not, you know, was, <laughs> I did not grow up a mansion or anything, but it was, it was about 2,000 square feet, a little bigger. I think it was like 2,400 square feet, um, so it wasn't a little house. But they, it, was not a, it was not a fancy neighborhood or anything. It was kind of a f- f- starter home, fixer type of thing. They bought it for $23,000 in the 1970s. In 1972, they bought it for $23,000. They paid off their mortgage very quickly. Their mortgage was only like $200 a month. Uh, And when that house was last assessed, because it had to be assessed whenever my mother passed, Uh, my dad still lives there, but it was assessed for close to half a million dollars. So my parents, theoretically, their net worth increased tremendously, even though they only had to pay the mortgage on $22,000. Their, their, it went up more than 10 times, almost more than 20 more than twenty times, their, their initial investment. So that's a great investment. The problem is they really had nothing to do with it. It had to do with the neighborhood. It had to do with the neighborhood. Um, gentrification kind of happened to that area. It, it's now like a kind of bougie, hoity-toity millennial place in Baton Rouge. And, and I'm not sure why my dad has not sold, but he probably should because it's too big for him and he's single now. But regardless... That is something that, you know, there were also houses in Baton Rouge and all across the country and more African-American areas that either did not increase in value or decreased in value, and yet you still have to pay what you initially borrowed the house for. So that's something that can really be g- generational wealth because – once you have a home that's like increasing in value like that, you can borrow upon that house. So you could borrow upon that house, you know, get use the equity you have in that house to do things like education, maybe start a business, things like that. Um, hey, I'll, I'll be real with y'all. Um, my wife and I, we we live on land that her. Her dad owned, because he got from her his ancestors, whatever, years ago, and that's one of the reasons I was able to afford my son, is because uh, we didn't have to pay mortgage for a while because we had a house. It's not the nicest house, but it's a very, you know, solid old house, and it's just one of these generational things. That's a wonderful thing. The problem is, for many, many years, African Americans were either denied the ability to buy homes, or because of redlining, the homes they were able to buy would decrease in value, which grew over wealth that's one of the things that people talk, when they talk about that you know, African-Americans have a lower net worth or lower wealth than white families, it's very easy to start pointing the finger at the individual, saying like, oh, they're lazy, oh, they don't work, they should get another job, learn to code, be like this person or that person or whatever. They're kind of ignoring the centuries beforehand that even though those guardrails are no longer in place, even though those restrictions are gone, they're still there. It's kind of like... Um, I'd like to use the analogy of a path in the woods. It's like a path in the woods. Yeah, you know, I want you to imagine a path in the woods that like before many, many years had guardrails. Like there was a fence, there was like a cattle prod fence. You could not go anywhere but the path. And so you keep walking, you keep walking, and over time you're gonna get a worn path. You're gonna get a worn path, it's gonna be deep, it's gonna be pretty much the way you want to go. Now I want you to imagine that all of a sudden, theoretically, The fence goes away. The electric fence goes away. More often than not, you're going to walk down that same path. You're going to walk down that same path. And that's kind of how the United States has been in terms of race stuff. Um, Yes, the the civil rights movement was wonderful. African-Americans have done better in a lot of different ways. But there's still quite a bit of these old ruts in the ground that are really hard to get out of. In fact, the persistence of black poverty is kind of a thing. I mean, we might even, that might even be one of your final exam questions. Just the idea that African-American poverty has been around, I mean, since African-Americans were slaves. But even afterwards, they were really not allowed a chance to really build wealth. Uh, the poverty rate does dip during the Clinton years. Uh, under the Clinton years, poverty rate does go down. Rose uh, under George W. Bush to about 24%. A lot of it has to do with the, the prevalence of inner city areas. Uh, inner city areas were those redlined areas that pretty much they're impossible to get out of. Um, you know, either you live there because you have a house there and you're underwater on your mortgage because you owe more than it's worth or nobody wants to buy your house because you can not get a chance to move or it's all these different things that theoretically nothing is stopping you from leaving but things are stopping you from leaving. Uh, inner city areas tend to have higher crime rates, uh, higher prevalence of drugs, and also, it tend to be have high, higher rates of HIV and um, AIDS due to things like promiscuity, but also mainly due to lack of uh, public health services. Uh, I always think of the Nas song uh, from, from Illmatic, Life's a, well, you know, I'm not going to say a bad word, but life's a bee and then you die. That's why we get high. It's like this idea that it's this very nihilistic. You can't get out of these bad areas. Why are you going to go more? Uh, it also persists in the South. African-Americans in the South are disproportionately higher to be under the poverty line than African-Americans in other parts of the country. And in the year 2000, about 55% of all black children were at or near the poverty line. That's a major issue. When you have a majority of the, P of the children growing up at the poverty line, uh, they're not getting the best access to things like, you know, health care and education. And the problem with that is that can be very hard to overcome. Um, if a child is messed up when they're a child, if a child does not have the best opportunity when they're a child, it can sometimes physically be impossible to overcome. Uh, I was watching a documentary the other night about a man who was born during the Spanish Civil War in the 1940s, uh, early late, late 30s, early 40s. He was born in the Spanish Civil War, and pretty much he starved when he was a child. When he was a baby, he suffered from malnutrition. Now, later on in life, you know, he was no longer suffering from malnutrition. He was able to get food. He was able to do something for himself. But he never grew more than, I think he was like 4'10", 4'11". Very short guy. His body would never recover. Like, he was physically unable to, like, get bigger because of the malnutrition that happened when he was a kid. Same thing for growing up under the poverty line. You know, when you grow up under the poverty line, these kids sometimes don't have a chance to get out of it. And it's one of those things that is exponential. Uh, Problem is, economic restructuring does... Shut up, Siri. Uh, economic restructuring also infects African-Americans in cities. A uh, big one was deindustrialization. Uh, deindustrialization, what happens in the 1970s and 80s, basically the United States moving away from a manufacturing economy because it moves to places like the South, or oftentimes it gets outsourced to places like China or Mexico, uh, really wipes out the jobs that African-Americans with limited education and I don't want to say few skills. I don't like the, the text for saying that. Um, l- Not not they have limited educational opportunity and less opportunity to earn new skills or to learn new skills. Pretty example of that is Oakland, California. Oakland, California was a manufacturing hub during the 1940s and 50s. Uh, During the 40s and 50s, Oakland, which is across the Bay from San Francisco, uh, all sorts of manufacturing stuff. They had canned goods, they had auto plants, they had a lot of war industries. And it it's a place that an African-American could get a job with limited education, didn't even need a high school diploma. You could go get a job and get a fairly good job, have enough to provide for your wife and your children. You know, be able to afford a, a, a house where it's a decent place to live. Uh, give your children economic opportunities if they get the chance to get an education. Yeah, you know, still, it's still in the 40s and 50s, so, you know, there is segregation all over the place. Problem is, uh, once manufacturing moves out of Oakland, uh, nothing really replaces it. With a loss of job, uh, people feel like they have really no place to go. Uh, drugs becomes more common, then drugs becomes more criminalized in the 80s. Uh, when something like the '19, sorry, the 2008 recession, even more things happen. This is the case in a lot of different African-American areas, uh, places dominated by African-Americans. Same thing happens in South Central Los Angeles. We'll talk about that when you ever listen to the gangster rap one. Uh, same thing happens in Detroit. Detroit has a major issue with uh, deindustrialization. Uh, let's see. Uh, also, incarceration is another issue within the African American community, uh, particularly for African American men. Um African Americans make up about half of the nation's prisoners but only about 13 to 15% of the uh, American population. And it's not like African Americans are committing more crimes than other races are. Uh a lot of it has to do with how policing is structured, like basically where are people patrolling, a lot of it has to do with what crimes are uh are really prosecuted. And you know, what? I'll be real. Um There's like a separate criminal justice system for if you have money or if you don't have money. Like, if you can afford a lawyer, you're going to get a much better time of maybe getting a plea deal or maybe even getting the charges thrown out than if you have to deal with a public defender. Nothing against public defenders. They do the best they can, but they're oftentimes overworked. And so if you have the money to afford a private attorney, you might actually have a chance of getting out of it. Problem is, because of the persistence of poverty in African-American communities and a whole bunch of other things with policing, I'm not getting into. We can talk about that in class. In fact, I'd love for us to talk about that in class. There's a lot going on in policing that pretty much makes it pretty hard for African-American men in particular to really navigate a criminal justice system. It's not that African-Americans are more violent or more crime-prone than anybody else. Um, the statistics prove that. The statistics prove that pretty much crimes are pretty much similar across the uh, races, but uh, the issue is prosecution. Who gets prosecuted? Who gets punished? And also, what are the, drill, um, what are the sentences? Uh, how's education doing for African Americans? Well, in some ways, it's doing pretty good. Uh, education for black folks after a half century of brown, doing okay. Uh, that's one of the reasons why African Americans were able to progress in their economic prospects is because of education. Uh, By the year 2000, about 86%, eh, 87% of African Americans have graduated high school. That differs by the area. Of course, some areas have lower graduation rates than others. Um, I taught at a school for a while that the African American male graduation rate was quite low. Uh, We worked really hard to try to improve it, but um, it was just low. that's, That's just one of those things. But also that has to deal with how African-American men or males are often more um, subject to discipline in schools than others. In fact, whenever I was teaching at this school, uh, we had to, uh, they're, they're under a court order that basically said that African-American males were getting high rates of suspensions and expulsions as opposed to white students, even though they were committing the same offenses and the same sort of numbers as white students. Um, Apparently, teachers tend to be more harsh on African American students, and particularly African American males. Another thing we could talk about, it. please do. Uh, this actually is a little bit lower than white people. Uh, about ninety-four percent of white people uh, graduate high school. Still, so that's pretty high for the U.S. That's pretty high across the board, honestly. Uh, and the fact that even though most who do not graduate high school are still literate—that's—that's—I uh, mean—that's across the board across all races. So that's something for the United States. Uh, By the year 2000, we had 1.5 million African-Americans in college. That number has only grown, uh, particularly among African-American women. Uh, In fact, women in general, regardless of race, are much more likely to be in higher education, much more likely to go to college. Uh, Nichols is no exception, actually. I I believe the numbers are, I believe Nichols is about 60, 65% uh, young ladies. And uh, that pretty much has been been the case in pretty much all my classes. Most of my classes have had about a... Uh, 60 to 65 percent uh, advantage in terms of the ladies. Uh, African Americans are among some of the most educated groups in the world. Uh, the keyword there is African Americans. Um, you know, they're, they're doing pretty well because of the education system. Um, rates are a lot lower in places like Africa or other countries. Uh, actually, education rates tend to be lower, uh, particularly in terms of literacy rate. Uh, literacy rate, which is actually literacy rate, is going higher across the world because of online and things. Uh, The problem is, even though African Americans are getting education, generally it is not an equal education. Uh, There's still a very, very strong gap in terms of funding. A lot of reasons for that. Um, Part of it is that we don't want to throw good money after bad, um, I don't want to call it a fallacy, but paradox. Um, Some schools are bad because they don't get taxes raised for them. And because the taxes don't get raised for them, the schools don't improve. And because the schools don't improve, people don't vote for taxes. Whereas areas that do have high tax rates actually tend to vote for the tax rates higher again to keep the schools going good. So that's one thing. Also, property taxes is an issue too. Um, African Americans are more likely to live in uh, lower income areas with lower home values. The main way that education is uh, provided for, public education, is done through the property tax because they figure if you live in an area, you're going to be the benefit of the education. Because of the Property values are lower, less money is going into education, it tends to decrease. Also, white flight is an issue too. We have talked about white flight, where basically uh, a lot of suburbs of major cities are pretty much 99% white or not black, and the inner city schools are 99% black. The best case I can give you is Jackson, Mississippi, which is 96% black in terms of the Jackson public schools, but if you go to the surrounding communities like Clinton, well not Clinton, Clinton's actually fairly equal. But, uh, you know, Madison, uh, Pearl, all the areas around there, they're pretty much 90-something percent white. Uh, That is something that is also disproportionately affecting African Americans. Uh, The health gap. So even though things have gone better for African Americans, like historically, compared to other African Americans, not so much compared to white Americans. Um, African Americans tend to live shorter lives than their white counterparts, and tend to get worse medical care, worse health care. A lot of it has to do with where African-Americans are living and the prevalence of poverty. Uh, Cancer and HIV are pretty big threats. Uh, There's also some things which are kind of cultural with lifestyle problems. Uh, Smoking, obesity, alcohol, and drugs is another thing. Um, Plus, there's issues with hypertension and uh, heart disease amongst African-Americans. Hypertension is just a fancy word of saying high blood pressure. Uh, It could be genetic or it could be diet-related. And also, diet is very much related to your um, availability of money. So, once again, it's another way that poverty is screwing people over. Uh, African Americans are actually disproportionately more likely to have HIV and AIDS uh, for various reasons. A lot of it is because of promiscuity. uh, Promiscuity in the sense of not practicing safe sex for different reasons. Uh, The textbook also wants to include the down-low culture. uh, The down-low culture, which is... um, African American men doing homosexual things on the down low, kind of in secret, uh, because of expectations of masculinity and uh, heteronormativity of African American men. So there's that. Uh, there are things improving for African Americans in terms of intellectual movements. Uh, there's kind of a cultural renaissance that emerges in the 1980s, uh, thanks to the success of black studies programs and emphasis upon black literature. Almost like a more sustained Harlem Renaissance. The Harlem Renaissance was only about a 10-year period. Uh, Since since the 1980s, it's actually improved for uh, African Americans in general. Uh, For instance, August Wilson, he's a black playwright, uh, wrote a series of plays based in Pittsburgh. He was the first African American male to win the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, This movement differed from earlier movements in that it was a lot more receptive for women. Way more inclusive, way more receptive of women. Uh, you have people like Toni Morrison and Alice Walker. Actually, Toni Morrison was awarded the Nobel Prize. Uh, a lot more African-American women involved in intellectual movements. And they're talking about a lot more different things. Uh, let's see. Uh, another thing we'll talk about very briefly, acting. Uh, more opportunities exist for African-Americans in acting. Uh, you start having more Broadway productions. Broadway, before this time, was seen something that was very white. Uh, Oprah Winfrey produces The Color Purple. You also have shows like Dreamgirls. And other things that come out, which really, you know, are really promoting African Americans on The Great White Way. The Great White Way is just another name of the same Broadway. Also, you start having African Americans winning uh, Academy Awards. Uh, first African American lady since, um, oh God, Hattie McDaniel for Gone with the Wind to Win was Halle Berry. Uh, the first black man since Sidney Poitier, I believe, was Jamie Foxx for, uh, for Ray. They mention uh, Forrest Whitaker, he gets Best Actor for Last King of Scotland, which if you haven't seen that, that's a great movie. It's about Idi Amin in Uganda. Uh, Jennifer Hudson also wins for Dreamgirls, uh, which is uh, actually an adaptation of a African-American stage play. Hip-hop! We're going to skip over this because you're going to learn more about it in another podcast, so just ignore the hip-hop. You know what? I'm going to delete it. You're not going to see hip-hop. No hip-hop. Uh, province of black, black scholars. Yeah. There's a lot more black scholars there are coming around that are getting more in help refining racial identity. Uh, two, I really like are Henry Lewis Gates. Uh, he's got a great show called finding your roots where he like takes relatively famous people and showing them their family trees. I would love to be on that show because I've done my own genealogy for my own family, but actually I've gotten back to the ninth century for one part of my family, which is kind of cool when you think about it. And I even found some royalty, not, not a direct descendant, not a direct descendant, but, uh, Uh, Yeah, I found like uh, Richard the Lionhearted and uh, William the Conqueror, I'm in their lines. Not direct descendant, I'm not a royal or anything. Same thing, remember, you know, the biggest asshole in human history, Sir Admiral John Hawkins, the guy who (laughs) brought slavery to England and the New World and invented tobacco, well, brought tobacco to the New World and the English attention. Uh, He's also my direct ancestor, so, so anyway, I'd love to be on his show. Henry Lewis Gates, he's also known for the Beer Summit. Uh, In fact, that's kind of something interesting I'll even mention. Like, even though you have African-Americans, you know, getting to some of the heights of intellectual, you know, he's a a scholar at uh, Princeton, I believe. Like, he is a uh, big-time speaker. This Henry Louis Gates. Ivy League educated. You know, he is one of the premier intellectuals of our time. He was actually uh, accosted by a policeman because he was trying to open his own door. Uh, apparently he he forgot his key or something, so he was looking around for his uh, his skeleton key. And while he was doing that, basically um, a cop came was like, "Hey, you seem suspicious." He's like, "Well, no, no, officer, this is my own house. I'm trying to get in." And the officer like actually put him in handcuffs for a while. Uh, this is where Obama had the beer summit. You may not remember that, but Barack Obama invited Henry Louis Gates and the arresting officer to the White House to have a beer and talk it over. Still the fact that you can be, you know, a premier, a premier, 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 like very well-established Henry Louis Gates, he's well into his 60s, if not his 70s. You know, he, he is not a threatening individual by any stretch of the imagination. And yet even he is accosted outside of his own house, like literally his own house, trying to go inside. Uh, another one is Cornell West. I love me some Cornell West. Cornell West, he's at Yale now, I think. He moves around. Uh, he's another one of these premier black historians. He does, like, uh, black religion in particular. And also, African-American studies are available at a lot of different schools. Um, part of the success of African-American studies, you can't even get a Ph.D. in it. Um, uh, you can't get a Ph.D. in Louisiana, I don't think, unless Tulane has one. But there are other schools. Pretty much all your Ivy League schools have it. So it's a really great thing. I also have Afro-centri- Afrocentricity that comes around as, as for quite a while. Uh, Basically trying to reassert a more, you know, Afrocentric, a positive African identity, kind of this trans-Africanism, trans-global thing. Um, Basically try to, uh, you know, kind of challenge Eurocentric values, kind of provide an alternative to uh, American, European institutions and values. A primo example of this is something like Kwanzaa. Something like Kwanzaa, which is kind of the black African-American celebration of the holidays, um... Some people do reject it, though. Some people basically say that Afrocentricity is not going to help anybody, and you kind of get into the larger trend of what do black people across the world have in common other than oppression? Is there anything that really bonds together? Uh, Let's see what else. Uh, Religion is still very much at the heart of the African-American experience. Uh, As around 2000, you have about 25 million members of black churches. That being said, though, uh, religion in general is actually going down amongst the American population. Uh, Still a bit higher in African Americans than other races, but it's even gone down to African Americans, particularly with younger people, millennials and and those younger actually tend to say that they have no religion or be what's called functional atheist, where they may not go to church, they may or may not. Uh, African American membership is growing in Catholic churches in particular, and also Episcopalian churches and other mainline Protestants, uh, which is actually causing some churches to have to have a reckoning. Uh, They have to have a a reckoning where basically, you know, how are we going to deal with the fact that our church might have had a long history of not being great to African Americans? Uh, Definitely very much still an issue. Uh, Middle class, though, middle class uh, individuals, though, uh, the the black middle class is moving to suburbs. Uh, They're tending to go more to mega churches. Uh, Mega churches are ginormous, Uh, they are ginormous, often have several thousand people that go. Um, It's not unusual for a megachurch to have ten thousand people come in through any given Sunday. They tend to be in suburbs because land is very hard to come by in big cities. Um, They tend to be a bit more racially inclusive. You do have black megachurches, of course, but a lot of them tend to be like whatever. Uh, These megachurches are not as institutional. They tend to be very loose in terms of theology, really putting more of the onus on the individual, uh, much more onus on the individual. I can talk about that much more in class because I'm fascinated by religion stuff. Uh, Somebody like T.D. Jakes is probably a pretty good example of that. I'm sure y'all can think of other examples of these black megachurch pastors. There has been criticism of them being part of the prosperity gospel, which is a much more materialistic form of Christianity, but we can talk about that more in class. Uh, Black churches are definitely on the front lines. Once again, that is something that never changes in um, American history. The African-American church is very important, not just to one's spiritual health, but one's health in general. Uh, Developing a lot of outreach programs to inner cities, uh, helping some of the most embattled people in terms of drugs, crime. Something like Salem Baptist Church in Chicago, which has an amazing outreach to all sorts of people in the area. It's got 17,000 members on the south side of Chicago and really tries to help people out. There are tensions, though, within the black church, uh, particularly because of the structure. Uh, most African Americans tend to be uh, Democrats politically, but black churches tend to be super conservative. Uh, super conservative, not always voting Republican. Actually, usually not voting Republican. But there's a lot of tension ab- about just how conservative black churches can be and also how patriarchal they could be. Uh, black churches tend to be super patriarchal. Like, super patriarchal. Uh, very much male-centric. Very pastor-led. And there tends to be a lot of authority within the pastor. Um, there are rituals that are involved. Uh, there tend to be a lot of times where the black man is the head of the church, but pretty much all the uh, like deacons or deaconesses or ushers or pretty much those who do the uh, middle management of church work are women. And there's definitely a tension there as well. Also, they tend to be very uh, traditional in terms of gender and sex roles. Uh, y'all can talk about more of that in your experience. I'm sure y'all have had some experience with that. Still, black women have started challenging some of the leadership positions, like the high leadership positions. Uh, particularly the AME Church has gotten a lot better about letting black women become ministers. They have about 3,000 black female ministers right now, which is uh, which is a pretty sizable number. Because there's only about 8,000 ministers in general in the AME Church. Almost half are female, so that's something to be said. Uh, a growing group, though, is the Nation of Islam. The Nation of Islam is gaining converts, not too much, not not too, too much, uh, black Muslims. Uh, we talked about that with Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X. Malcolm X was killed. Then Elijah Muhammad uh, later retires. Uh, Louis Farrakhan is the one he takes over for Elijah Muhammad. Uh, it's a fairly small number uh, only 1.5 million African Americans are uh, Muslim or nation, and even a small percentage of that are Nation of Islam uh, remember you do have like, things like Somali immigrants who are Muslim and they are not Nation of Islam by any stretch of the imagination uh, the Nation of Islam for instance uh, is really really not that big it's only about 20 to 40,000 people Most black Muslims are just like immigrants or things. Uh, However, they really, 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 Nation of Islam is very interesting in terms of economic solidarity. Uh, They're very big on pushing uh, African-American ownership, African-American entrepreneurialism, uh, basically keeping dollars within the black community. Uh, Also, theoretically, have solidarity with other Muslims. Uh, There is very much some tension within the United States after something like 9-11, where basically Muslims were very much denounced uh, in general. Not black Muslims, not too too much. Black Muslims claim solidarity, but in general, um, it was the more Arab of Muslims that were um, targeted for harassment. By the way, I hope you do know most Muslims are not Arab. Uh, the term Muslim and Arab is not interchangeable. Like, uh, yeah, uh, most Muslim. Like, in fact, the country with the highest Muslim population is uh, Indonesia, and like none of those people are Arab. They're Indonesian. So go figure. Uh, Farrakhan is an interesting, interesting cat. Uh, Farrakhan, like I said, he is a very controversial figure. Um, yeah, he's a controversial figure, I'll just say that. Uh, some people love him, some people hate him. Uh, he can be viewed as racial division, even amongst African Americans. Not all African Americans agree with his message. Uh, becomes the leader of the nation of Islam in 78. He's the one who really gets it into economic venues starting in 82, uh, it actually gets money from Muammar Gaddafi, who is uh, the head of Libya for a while. He is an interesting cat altogether. I don't have time to do with that. Uh, he does support Jesse Jackson in 1984. Uh, Jesse Jackson was a Martin Luther King disciple who ran for president in '84. never really had that much of a chance, uh, sadly, but he, you know, he, he did give a pretty good speech in 1984, uh, theoretically leading the way for a, another black candidate who actually does come around by the name of Barack Obama. Uh, the other problem with the Nation of Islam and Farrakhan is Farrakhan tends to be pretty anti-Semitic. He's not a big fan of Jews. He says a lot of things about Jews. Very ultra white wing in terms of being anti-Semitic. You know, he said that maybe Hitler might have had some points on some stuff. That's not exactly a way to endear yourself to anybody. If you go over one slide, you're gonna see uh, you're gonna see uh, Louis Farrakhan. Uh, Probably Farrakhan's biggest uh, accomplishment was the Million Man March that happened in 1995. Um, Basically, Farrakhan said, hey, we want to have a march of black men. We want to have a bunch of black men come to the nation's capital, march around. Uh, We don't know exactly how many people showed up. It might have been a million. It might not have been a million. Um, Numbers vary quite a bit. Uh, It was definitely several hundred thousand uh, definitely more than half a million, maybe more than a million. Um, the the best numbers I've seen have been about 600,000 or so. Still, um, they met, and that's about the best thing I can say about the Million Man March, because unlike the March on Washington in 63, it really wasn't trying to lead for like any legislation or rally for anything. Basically, it's Farrakhan trying to prove that he can still do it, that we could still have a big march. Theoretically, it was an encouragement from across the spectrum to uh, you know be more involved with their families. Uh, I should also mention it was not just Muslims. In fact, the majority of the people who went to the Million Man March were not Muslims. They were Christians and other maybe even non-affiliated people. Um, a lot of black churches. I remember uh, black churches in Baton Rouge like advertising like, "Hey guys, we're going to go to the Million Man March. We're going to have a bus." Um, just kind of thing is like seen as like a hey, we can do the big march thing again. Uh, nothing really happened afterwards. Also, Farrakhan was willing to meet with some like pretty horrible dictators in Africa, which kind of uh, made him not too popular. Uh, still, in the 2000 census, it said that there were 34 million African Americans. Uh, there's about 300 spare change uh, Americans. I think nowadays, we haven't had the 2020 census yet, but I want to say, I don't know, there's about 340 million Americans nowadays. About twelve percent of the uh, American population is African American. That number has never really changed. It's, I mean, at the high, it goes to about fifteen percent. Never lower than ten percent. Uh, usually in that thirteen to fourteen percent range of the U.S. population, African American. Uh, African Americans actually, as of two thousand, were no longer the largest minority group. As of two thousand, they were no longer the largest minority group. Uh, the largest minority group was. Ah, oh, God! Sorry, I'm scratching. Uh, the largest uh, minority group was Hispanic people. Uh, Hispanic people are now the largest minority group, but even Hispanics will tell you that's kind of a misnomer because the term Hispanic is very much a blanket term, and there's a lot of difference between, like, a Cuban and, uh, and a Mexican and, a, like, a Nicaraguan or somebody from El Salvador. A lot of differences. A lot of differences. Pretty much outside of America, they would not consider themselves all the same, but in the United States, they're all considered the same. Uh, that is the growing... Uh, growing minority group in fact i believe it's by the 2050 or 20 2060 census uh hispanic people are going to become the majority within the united states so uh definitely within y'all's lifetime maybe in my lifetime depending on how long i live i mean you know if let's see in 20 i should make it to 2050 that's only like 30 years from now so i'll be i'll be 60 something yeah i'll probably make it i need to lose some weight but i should be able to make it so probably within my lifetime Uh, It still shows that about 54% of African-Americans live in the South. That is something that really has never changed in U.S. history, too. Um, About 19% live in the Midwest, 18% in the Northwest, and then 10%, sorry, Northeast, so like New York area, Boston area, and 10% in the West. Still, most African-Americans are living in the South. Uh, The place with the largest number of African-Americans is New York City, with about 2.3 million African-Americans. That's not the largest by percentage, though. Other cities are much more um, higher percentage African-Americans. Uh, also, what's interesting in 2000 was that census residents could choose more than one race. Uh, really interesting how this changes our notions of race. I think a pretty good example of that is Barack Obama. Uh, Barack Obama has a white mother. Well, had. He, she passed away, sadly. Uh, his mom was white. His dad was uh, was, you know, was black. He is considered black, even though, you know, if he could fill out two boxes, he would be like, well, I'm black and white. You know, my mom was white, and my, you know, my... My mom was white from uh from Kansas, my dad was black from Kenya. Like, come on, that's 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 about as two races you can get. Uh, and plus it really changes what it means to be black, what it means to have race. The race in itself is becoming much more fluid, uh, not just due to like intermarriage, but also because of people's heritage. Um Yeah. Like there's a lot of African- I think I told you in class, like. Pretty much all African-Americans have some white ancestry in them at some point. So, you know, does the one-drop rule work in reverse? I mean, yeah, it gets way more complicated. Uh, Immigration, really quickly, 65, the Hart-Seller Act, opens the door to more immigrants of African descent. So that's where you have more African immigrants coming in, like Africa-Africa immigrants. Uh, Also, the number of West Indies immigrants really increases, really increases in the 1960s. Uh, In fact, that's where most of these new uh, immigrants are coming from. It's places like the West Indies, the Caribbean. Uh, By the time you get to the 90s, you have over a million Caribbean people. Uh, New patterns are coming in. Uh, Basically, there is much new (laughs) immigrants that are coming in from the Caribbean. Quite different than previous African Americans. Um, If you're unfamiliar, Caribbean people, although they are black, they are quite different in terms of pretty much everything. Culture, language all sorts of things like that. And also, like, they, some of them come from societies that don't have as much racial discrimination, so whenever they come to the United States, it's kind of new for them to deal with this type of discrimination. Uh, let's see. Black feminism, yeah, that starts growing up as well. That kind of comes out of the civil rights movement. We talked about that before. Uh, really want to, uh, they want to go attack the stereotypes and myth of black women. And by the way, black women are doing quite well in modern society compared to they were historically. Uh, black women far outnumber black men in higher education, and they have things like black women's history. Not just women's history or black history, but like black women's history is a field within academia. I don't do that myself, but I know people who do, and they do a very good job of that. It's, it's a very growing field, very interesting, different, uh, different perspectives. Uh, when you're talking about somebody who's often in history, particularly in history of the U.S., a double minority... And people whose voice really was not heard before, uh, gay and Amer, gay and American, gay and lesbian African Americans, uh, yeah, um, LGBT stuff, particularly within the trans community, uh, African Americans do suffer uh, quite a bit in terms of uh, LGBTQ rights and acceptance, uh, particularly within the African American African American community. African-American community. Um, I worked for a while with a nonprofit that, uh, in addition to dealing with people who recently got out of prison, also tried to help out uh, trans African-Americans. Uh, that can be an isolating people. I-, I will just say that. A lot of trans African-Americans uh, have much higher rates of suicide, have much higher rates of like everything bad going on, much more likely to be in poverty, even compared to other African-Americans. Uh, still very much a growing movement. Um It's kind of hard because oftentimes African-Americans were marginalized within their own black community, and they're often marginalized within gay communities as well. Um, LGBTQ, early on at least, tended to really focus upon the experience of white people, particularly white men. Um, A lot of early LGBTQ organizations were very much dominated by white men, really white men of means. Even though the majority of, in fact, the majority of like uh, LGBTQ folks are people of color, they tend to be quite a bit younger, and they tend to be quite a bit poorer than kind of your stereotypical leadership within a lot of these organizations, which tends to be uh, wealthier white men. So that's something that's going on there. Uh, and although there has been progress within the United States for African Americans, despite the continuance of poverty and racism... Uh, You cannot deny that African-Americans have contributed a lot to American culture. Also, diversity is still very much in the African-American experience. It's led to different conceptions of identity and race. Uh, And there's still some tensions between racial and other identities. And we'll talk about this in class. What is one's major identity? Is it race or is it something else? You know, are we like um, James Baldwin, you know, for African-Americans? Sorry, uh, Bois. Not Baldwin Baldwin said a lot of good stuff too uh, Du Bois are basically African Americans are you know they, they have this dual consciousness of being American and black at the same time but are there other things that might also come into it or is is something like gender you know is it you 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 have this th- three identity as you' you're you're, a, you're an American you're a woman and you're black or you're poor or you're rich or you're a mother or you're a sister or all these other things are you LGBTQ like all these different things, form your identity and, and as we struggle with this not struggle but as we wrestle with this uh, i think it's really going to provide a lot more um clarity and a outlook for african-americans in general and that kind of ends the class so with that i would advise you to go on over listen to the rap stuff you know you want to it's going to be fun uh some of it is uh for different classes so don't be if i say anything about that the information is still good and i'll make sure the powerpoints are still are still on point but uh if say anything about you know test or something in particular for that class. Ignore that, but just listen to the information. We'll talk about it in class. Um, I hope you'll have a good one. It's been a good class. I enjoyed it and I will see y'all around. Bye.